You know, located on the northeast corner of the National Archives building in Washington, D.C., is a statue sculpted by Robert Aitken back in 1935, and it's known as the future. And at the base of this statue, etched in limestone, are these words. What is past is prologue. Those words sound familiar? If you're a fan of Shakespeare, they might. Those words appear in his work, The Tempest. The idea is that history is a good predictor of the future. What is past is prologue. What has happened sets up what is going to happen. C.S. Lewis coined a term called chronological snobbery. And the idea behind chronological snobbery is that people who live in a certain culture at a certain time in a certain place always think that they're the most special. The time they're in is the best time. They don't really think about their history or what went before them. They think about their time being the best time, and that's it. But folks, we have to remember as Christians, our past is prologue. Our past points to our present and our future because what happened some 2,000 years ago means everything to us. Anything else that happens in our lifetime, anything else that happens beyond our lifetime will never compare to what happened in the past. And I'm speaking, of course, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important event ever in the history of our world. And that past is prologue to what our future is going to be, right? Our eternal destination, the way that we live our lives right now in this present time, everything is predicated upon what happened some 2,000 years ago. Past is prologue. The resurrection means that life is going somewhere and that there is hope. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at salvation words in our one-word study. And we're going to be looking and dwelling upon Romans chapter 3 quite a bit. And so if you'll look there, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, reads like this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all those who believe. For is, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. We sing a song every now and then called Ancient Words. Ancient words ever true, changing me, changing you. There are a couple of ancient words in this passage. Justified and propitiation. 
Now, in an effort to make the Bible more readable, some versions have toned down those words, replaced them, or dumbed them down. And I think that's a travesty because I think instead of toning some words down, we need to raise the level of our intellect to understand them better. And when it comes to the words justified and propitiation, which we'll talk about propitiation later, but when we talk about words like those, we have to understand and grasp the full meaning because they mean everything to us, everything to our salvation. If we don't grasp what it means to be justified before God, then we don't even understand what the past is and how it's prologued to the future. The doctrine of justification is found throughout the New Testament. The New Testament is saturated with this doctrine. The idea is simple. The simple idea is this. You stand before a holy God, not guilty. As the redeemed of Christ, as one who has been washed in the blood of Christ, you get to stand before a holy God, and he gets to say, not guilty. What a beautiful concept, right? Because as Paul said, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one is excluded from that. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You may have heard justified explained as just as if I never sinned. Sounds tried and, you know, churchy, but it's true. Justification means that I am justified before a holy God even though I should be condemned. And so how we, looked at ju- how we look at justification means everything for us. We, we ask ourselves this crucial question, how can I be made right before God? And we answer that through the concept of justification. To justify something means to make it right. We do this all the time, right? The devil made me do it. I was drunk. I'm born this way. I couldn't help myself. It's just the way that I am. God knows my heart. We do our best over and over again to explain away or to justify our transgressions before a holy God. We try to shift the blame. We try to take the onus off of ourselves. That's been happening from the beginning of time. You remember Adam and Eve. Eve blamed the devil. Adam blamed God for giving him the woman. This has been going on for many, many eons. It happens every day in courtrooms across America. A lawyer stands and tries to get his client off on a charge that maybe he's completely guilty of. But the lawyer tries his best to defend his client, to present evidence in a way that makes him seem like he's not guilty, even if he's guilty of sin. We try to get ourselves off the hook by claiming that technically we didn't really sin. We try to kind of look for loopholes and technicalities, or we compare ourselves to other people, and we say, well, at least I'm not as bad as them. At least I hadn't done as much bad as they have. You know who were experts at justifying themselves? You could probably guess. In the Bible? The Pharisees, of course. They were experts in justification. And if you look at Luke chapter 18, there's a very interesting parable that Jesus tells here about a Pharisee and a publican. And starting in verse 9, it reads, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, 
but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, I, I want you to pay special attention to verse 9 there. It says, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. He's talking about the Pharisees there. That was the core of their problem. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They tried to justify themselves before a holy God. And you know how they tried to justify themselves? By keeping the law. Not just keeping the law, but keeping their own laws. They felt like that these hedge laws and these oral traditions that they'd been handed down, that they were as much law as God's law. And if you kept them perfectly, then you could be justified before a holy God. But Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, everyone, even the one who seems righteous, even the one that seems religious. You know, the Pharisees couldn't see that. And what's worse than being guilty is not being able to recognize or refusing to recognize your guilt. Notice the prayer again. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like swindlers and unjust and adulterers or even like this tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. You know, the Pharisee didn't really pray, did he? He bragged. He gave his resume before God as if God was going to be impressed. You see, the Jews were required to keep one fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. But in Jerusalem on Mondays and Thursdays, large crowds gathered. So if you wanted to make a display of your piety, that's when you fasted. And many Jews would do so in order to show themselves to be more religious than others. They would whiten their face, they would wear disheveled clothes, and they would walk among the people in the marketplace just to get attention. The praise for men, oh, look how pious he is. He's fasting twice a week. And then also it was required that you pay the tithes of your produce. But this, this gentleman here that went up to pray was, was tithing things he didn't even have to tithe. He wasn't obligated to tithe these things, but he was doing them. You know why he was doing them? So that he could receive the praise of men. So that he could give his resume before God. So that he could justify himself and say, look at me, God. I've crossed every T and I've dotted every I. But God wasn't impressed. Because it's not about your religiosity. It's about a relationship. Into the temple walks this lowly tax collector. He prays as well, but his prayer takes a very different tone, doesn't it? He doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to shift the blame. He doesn't point the finger elsewhere. He recognizes his guilt. And notice that Jesus says of him, he went to his house justified. This lowly tax collector, rather than the religious elite, went to his house justified. Why? Why did he go home justified? Because he recognized that he couldn't justify himself. He recognized that before a holy God, he was guilty as charged. Paul wrote, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The humility of this tax collector changed everything. He recognized that he could not justify himself, that only God could do that. Notice again verses 24 and following of Romans 3. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is the justifier? God and God alone. Faith in Jesus, being washed in his blood, means is the means, I should say, by which we are justified. 
Understand the meaning and magnitude of this concept. All of you sitting here this morning stand condemned. Before you were a Christian, you were condemned because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's as if you were in a courtroom in heaven and you're sitting there and there is one who is accusing you saying that you have done all these things throughout your life and you know they're true. And they have called, the prosecution has called witness after witness and they have all stood up and testified about all the, the terrible things that you've done. Some of them you didn't even remember. But now you recall. And as they're lodging all of these accusations, all you can do is bow your head because you know you're guilty as charged. You know that you deserve the death penalty. But there's a judge in that courtroom that every time an accusation is made, he overrules it. God sits on the throne in heaven and he slams down his gavel every time and says, not guilty. Over and over again, he says, not guilty. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelm conquer through him who loved us for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord who is in that courtroom who can bring a charge against us that will stick in the ears of the Almighty the devil can try but it's not going to work because he's already been defeated who can bring a charge against the people of God? Shall the law bring a charge against us? No, because the law was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Shall the devil bring any charge against us? No, that won't work. Not anyone, not any angel or demon or anyone in heaven or under earth can bring a charge against us in the ears of God because it is God who justifies. Which means the judge of the universe is on our side. He shouldn't be. He should be against us. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He should be in opposition to us, but he's not. A holy and wrathful God is on our side, and he claims that we are not guilty when he sees us washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. Go back to Proverbs 17, 15. We talked about this verse very early in the year when we looked at wrath as one of our words. This is where those two words intersect, wrath and justified. Proverbs 17, 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. How can a holy God justify the wicked and not be an abomination to himself? How can he do that? Here's the answer. The gospel. That's how. The judge of the universe knows your heart. He knows every single thing about you, every thought, every hidden action, every sin locked away in the crevices and the recesses of your heart. Nothing is hidden from his side. And you want him to say what? You want him to say not guilty? How can he do that? The 
gospel. That's how. Understand what's going on here. You cannot afford to miss what's going on here. What happens all too often is we know the story so well that we overlook the details. We know the passages of Scripture so well, and we've read them so many times that we miss the forest for the trees, right? It's kind of like the Border Patrol agent who was suspicious of this man that came through all the time. He was in a big, a big truck, and he came through, and the Border Patrol agent searched and searched. He pulled off the wheel wells. He pulled off the door panels, everything, looking for contraband because he was suspicious, but he never found a shred of anything. Year after year, this man would come through in these big trucks, and he would search and search because he knew he was smuggling something, but he couldn't find it. And finally, the day of his retirement came, and the Border Patrol agent sees the man drive up in a truck once again. He says, you know, all these years I've been suspicious of you. I know you're smuggling something. I don't know what it is, but today is my day of retirement. Why don't you tell me what you've been smuggling? And the man said, trucks. He completely missed it, completely missed it because he was looking for something, and he missed the obvious, and we do that. We know the story. Yes, Jesus came. He lived on this earth. He died, he was crucified, he died, and he was buried. On the third day, he rose again. If we believe and confess, repent, and are baptized, we become a new creature in Christ. We are saved. We know all that. But remember where all this started. You were plucked from the fires of hell. You deserve eternal punishment. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't deserve to have a holy God on our side. We deserve hell. Think about that. Think about the concept of justification as it relates to your salvation. You were sentenced to everlasting condemnation. And as I've said over and over again, the worst part about hell is not the flames and the brimstone and all that. The worst part about hell is to be banished from the presence of God for all eternity. Notice 1 Thessalonians, excuse me, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, starting in verse 6. For after all... It is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well <clears throat> when <clears throat> the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Yikes! That was you. Read yourself into that, because before you became a child of God, that was you. You were destined to spend eternity away from the Heavenly Father. But there's been a reversal of wrath. It's as if someone busted into that courtroom and says, I'll take the penalty for you. I'll die in your stead. You don't have to endure the death penalty. I'll take it for you. Because Jesus endured what we deserve. And that changes the game completely. It changes everything. There has been a reversal of wrath. Notice again in Romans, this time chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, catch that, now being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Do you realize that much of the letter to the Romans is addressing the two ways in which a person 
can be justified? Some believe that they could be justified by the law. As long as I kept the law, as long as I crossed every T and dotted every I, I could be justified before a holy God. But you can't keep the law perfectly. That's why Jesus came. It doesn't work. The other way you can be justified is by accepting Jesus, by understanding the sacrifice, being washed in his blood. We'll talk about that concept of propitiation next week, but that appeases the wrath of God. Now you've been cleansed in the blood of Christ. Now you stand before God, a new creature in Christ, transformed. Now you're justified. Too many people are trying to justify themselves before a holy God, and it doesn't work that way. How do you say? How do people do that? One concept that we have to understand that goes along with this is that you didn't earn this. You didn't earn this. And I think this is something that's hard for Christians to wrap their minds around. We believe that as long as I'm, I'm obedient enough, that God will accept me. That as long as I perform well, God will justify me. We've talked about it over and over again. What were you before you became a child of God? I know all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes it very clear that you were what in your trespasses? You were dead. Dead people can't do anything. They certainly can't justify themselves. What can a corpse do? I see Luke's eyes getting big back there. He's like, you're going off script, Chris. I'll get back there, Luke. When it comes to justification, you didn't earn this. And it's not something that you deserve. This is something that when we accept the conditions that come along with the gift, we obey and therefore we receive. But this is not something that is merited to us. You know, a lot of the religious world believes that we believe that, right? Many in the religious world would say, well, you believe in baptism, therefore you believe you're trying to merit your salvation. Understand that baptism is an expression of faith. It's not a work of merit. We're not trying to earn anything with baptism. I believe with all my heart that you are saved through faith. The Bible tells us that. But the Bible is very clear that faith is motivated by action. And that faith moves you to repent, to confess, to be baptized for the remission of your sins. Baptism is an expression of a saving faith. But be careful patting yourself on the back and thinking that you've done something right before God just because you are obedient. You didn't earn this. You received it. And you received it by obeying the conditions, if that makes sense. This is not mental gymnastics. It's not semantics. This is true that the obedience is the product of a heart that is given to God. The obedience is not a performance to try to earn anything. Sometimes that can be a blurry distinction, but it is a distinction. It's kind of like the gentleman who's sitting in court, and he is, he is given the option of either paying a, a $100 fine or going to jail for 90 days. Now, he has an invalid wife at home and five children that need him. He can't go to jail for 90 days. They wouldn't make it without him. And so he tells his story to the judge, and the people in the courtroom feel sympathy for him, so they take up a collection. And lo and behold, they're able to collect $99.95. He's short a nickel. And the judge says, I'm sorry. I can't let you off. You're going to jail. You're five cents short. 
And so the judge orders the bailiff to take the man to jail, and as he's leaving, he, he puts his head down, he, he, he shifts his hands, and he puts them in his pocket, and he pulls out a nickel. And he's ecstatic. He goes, look, I, look, I found a nickel, and he slams it down on the judge's table. Let me ask you, what would that man think saved him? Would he think it was the $99.95 that saved him, or would he think it was the nickel? He'd probably be tempted to think it was the nickel that, after all, saved him, right? But when it comes to our salvation, we can't even pay five cents on it. We can pay nothing. Christ paid everything. You know, there's a point of controversy in the religious world when it comes to salvation and the point that we are saved. And some say, well, all you got to do is have faith. It's a mental ascent. Just believe in God and you'll be saved. There's nothing else that you can do, that it's all, it's all God after that. There are some people who think you're baptized at one or two days old. You're christened, so to speak, so that you do have salvation. But in that case, how can you have faith? How can you believe? A baby can't believe. A baby can't have faith. And they say, well, that's for the sin uh, of Adam and Eve. It's original sin. Okay, well, what? What sin did a baby commit in the womb? Adultery, murder, cussing? What did they do, right? And so there's all this controversy in the religious world, but when you look at justification, when you look at the salvation of a sinner, you have to ask the question, who is your Savior? Who is your Savior? That's what all of this boils down to. Whatever advantage that you may think you have as a sinner is null and void when you consider the faith that is involved. James states very plainly, in his epistle, that faith without works is dead. You know what he's speaking of? He's speaking of justifying faith. The kind of faith that justifies. And the kind of faith that justifies is not the kind of faith that sits still and does nothing. He even said, faith without works is dead, right? So just believing isn't enough. Or being baptized without believing certainly doesn't work. Who is your Savior? And how you answer that question means everything. If you think that baptism alone can save you, you're wrong. If you think faith without anything else can save you, then you're wrong. To be washed in the blood of Christ. To stand a new creature in Christ before a holy God. To accept the conditions that have been laid forth. That's what it means to have a saving faith. A faith that justifies. We could ask it this way. Are you trying to justify yourself? Or will you allow God to do the justifying? If you think you're your own savior, then you are in a world of trouble. But when you allow God to do the justifying, you understand that this is not about your merit or anything that you can earn, but rather this is about what God has done. Will you accept it? How many of you have ever thought, I'm not blank enough? Fill in the blank. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not mom enough. I'm not blank enough. How many of you ever thought in those terms? The next time you think that way, I want you to think about two words. The next time you think, I'm not blank enough, fill in the blank. Next time you think that way, I want you to think about these two words. But God. 
but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You know, the fact that you're not good enough is what makes grace so amazing. The entire gospel is predicated on the fact that you're not good enough. You say, Chris, I'm not good enough. God, I'm not good enough. I'm not blank enough. Guess what? You never will be. That's what all of this is about. It all boils down to that. You're not good enough, and you never will be. Let me save you the suspense. But God is. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You are not good enough, but God is. You are guilty, but God is the justifier. I want to close this morning with a prayer, and the prayer is going to be an invitation as well. So when I finish with this prayer, Don's going to launch us into a song, and if you need to answer the invitation, maybe you don't necessarily feel comfortable coming forward and doing that. Come see me after services. See one of our ministers. See one of our elders. In this prayer slash invitation, I want to pray for our folks here that maybe need to do a U-turn, that maybe... Maybe they've drifted off the path of righteousness. God allows U-turns. I want to pray for those who are here this morning that are searching, that don't know where to turn, but quite honestly, have not been washed in the blood of Christ, so may stand condemned before a holy God. Certainly, we want to pray for those folks. And we want to pray for those folks who feel like I'm not blank enough. As we pray, I want you to Think about in your heart where you stand with God and what you need to do to be made right before Him. But God, He is the justifier. May we never forget that. Let's pray. Our most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for this day, for this opportunity to be here. We thank You for Your, your Son, for the concept of justification. The fact that sinners like us can stand before a holy God and there be a reversal of wrath. We thank you, God, that none of us have to endure eternal punishment, but that we can live with you in eternal glory forever and ever. That the past is prologue. That the resurrection sets all of this up and that if we abide in your word, if we seek to follow you faithfully, that we can be with you for all eternity. And God, we realize that there are some here this morning that are hurting. They're hurting physically, they're hurting emotionally, they're hurting spiritually. We pray for them. And we pray, as always, that no one leaves here this morning without being right with God. Thank you, Lord. And Lord, come quickly. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.